Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello, and welcome to the show. We just want to give you a little ears warning. Due to the circumstances of Nell Gwen's life, we are going to have to tell you this episode is not suitable for children. Her life and her profession intertwine, and the scenarios in and around King Charles II's Restoration London Court, well, we just can't edit or bleep or sanitize and still tell her story. So click away if you have small friends with you, and we'll see the younger part of our audience next time. And now, on with the show. And here is your 30-second summary. She's pretty and she knows it. She's witty and she shows it. And besides that, she's so witty and so little and so pretty. She has a hundred other parts for to take and conquer hearts. Amongst the rest, her air is so sprightful, so pleasant and delightful. With such charms and such attractions in her words and in her actions. As whoe'er do hear and see, say there's none do charm but she. But for that suffice to tell ye, tis the little pretty Nellie. The end. Let's talk about Nell Gwynn. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1662, the very first bus service began in Paris with a fleet of seven horse-drawn carriages running on a set route and schedule. The colonies of Rhode Island and Connecticut were granted charters by the British monarch King Charles II. And the fine folks in Rhode Island got busy building America's very first lime kilns to produce a product that was primarily used in building mortar. The character who would later become Punch of Punch and Judy puppet fame first appeared in England. King Philip IV was in his final years of his reign in Spain, and the Sun King Louis XIV was in the 20th of his 72-year rule of France. Marie-Louise Dorline, future Queen of Spain, was born in France. Elizabeth Stuart, granddaughter of Mary Queen of Scots, and Blaise Pascal, who was the inventor of the very first bus service in France, both died. Author of Paradise Lost, John Milton married his third wife, Elizabeth. And in 1662, per the king, women were legally allowed to appear in theatrical productions in England, setting the stage for Nell Gwynn's career and life. Eleanor Gwynn was born on, perhaps, February 2nd of, we think, 1650. That's as good as a guess as any we're going to have. Because this is the date that Nell herself gave an astrologer many years later. So, because we have to have a date to work with, that is what we have chosen. Born where, though? Hmm. Well, there's a case for Hereford, if you think her papa is one guy. There's a case to be made for London, say some others. But the weightiest and most contemporary to her candidate for both papa and her birthplace seems to be Oxford, with Dr. Edward Gwynne, canon of Christchurch, Oxford, as her grandpapa, and his military son, Thomas, sometimes written as James, it's killing me, as <laughs> Nell's papa. And even the last name, sometimes it's written as with one N, sometimes it's written with two. These people have a lot of different versions of their names, but, you know, they've been around since the 1600s. I think spelling of many words was very assorted for mm -hmm. a very long time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So 
Thomas, let's call him, married Miss Helena Smith and had two daughters, Rose and Eleanor. So that part checks out. If this man, Captain Thomas Gwynn, was her papa, he had just been fighting on the wrong side of history, which was the king's side, unexpectedly. Only one year before Nell, a little Eleanor's nickname, was born, King Charles, who we know is King Charles I, but at the time was just King Charles, because there weren't any more. <laughs> the only, yeah. Yes, had been deposed and then executed by his enemies. The key issue in their dispute is the king an absolute ruler, or should the people, and by that you should read the right people, have a say via parliament. And after years of fighting, the parliamentarians won. And for the very first time in British history, the king was found guilty of treason. And the words they used, that the king upheld in himself an unlimited and tyrannical power to rule according to his will and to overthrow the rights and liberties of the people. Which to me sounds like everything that every plain old king has always done. Yeah. So they sentenced him to death by beheading their king. They're anointed by God, in their view, king. This whole movement and the final act really bypassed the average common man. I think the day of his execution, thousands arrived to see the spectacle. And word was the official executioner had gone into hiding so he wouldn't have to do it, if that gives you a sense of the general mood. Though, afterward, some say that it probably was him in disguise because the skill level was so high. Mm -hmm. But as far as officially, he wasn't in it, had nothing to do with him. So the executioner, regular or substitute, after the fatal blow... Uh, held up the head as usual, but instead of the usual cheers, and I quote an onlooker, there was such a groan by the thousands then present as I never heard before and desire that I may never hear again. Well, so say the royalists anyway, and honestly, on this podcast, we cannot get 100% into the politics and reputation of the man who eventually took over. Lord Protector Oliver Cromwell he is a divisive dude. There is a statue of him right outside of Westminster Abbey between there and Parliament that as recently as 2004, some members of Parliament wanted to have removed and melted down. So if they can't work it out by now, <laughs> we're not going to settle it for you. So let's give you a link to some back and forth about Cromwell good, Cromwell bad, and concentrate on a few factors of this recent history that involve our subject, Nell Gwynn. Upon the defeat at the Battle of Worcester, the last major battle of the English Civil War, the king's eldest son and heir fled the country. The second his papa died, technically, historically, traditionally, he ought to have become king of England, the way our own recent King Charles had been. But England was now a commonwealth, a republic, though Charles was the king of Scotland still. Charles had to flee in any case, and the six-week trip across England was fraught with near misses. He famously hid in an oak tree while 
Parliamentary troops searched below. He was taught to walk and talk like a farm worker by some royalists. There was some subterfuge of being a servant. Half of an eloping couple, he was hidden in priest holes by Catholics all across the country. Once he was literally saved by a woman going into labor and distracting some pursuers. Thanks, lady. Eventually, he ended up safe in Paris with his mother and sister, and he never forgot those who had helped him at great risk to their lives and later rewarded them handsomely. But as for right now, at the time of Nell's birth, Charles II is an exile, biding his time across the water in France. England wasn't under royal rule anymore. It was under Cromwell's rule. So there's no kings. Actually, there's no a lot of things. There's no theaters. There's no inns. There's no sports. There's no swearing. That is actually punishable by prison. There's no work on Sunday. There's no walking except to church on Sunday. There's no makeup. There's no colorful dresses. There's no traditional Christmas celebrations, only religious ones. And all those feast days of saints, those are now fast days. There's not even any maypoles around town. Yeah, they went full footloose. Remember that movie? These Puritans were not the most cheerful people. And guess who they were? Yeah, you remember the Mayflower, don't you? (laughs) So the Puritans that were sent years ago to the Americas to start a colony wasn't the only country that these Puritans are trying to take over. Ireland was now under the same rule. And in Ireland, Catholics were banned from practicing their religion. And they were stripped of their land, which was given to Protestant settlers. You know what I never understood is Cromwell, uh, you see all these things that he did. He was credited for instituting religious freedoms. That doesn't sound like freedom. I think because he wasn't harsh to the Jews that they give him credit for that. But he was extraordinarily harsh within his own faith. Mm hmm. That's why I think we should give you a link because it's complicated. Like there are some, you know, I'm kind of prejudiced against the Puritans because really they wanted, I don't know, it just seemed like they wanted a theocracy at the expense of like human life. Mm -hmm. And they didn't value this human life. They wanted the, the next life. And so this life was only a preparation for the next life. Right. So everyone can't just live like that. I will tell you also that Cromwell was perfectly happy with music and and dancing in his own house, especially at one of his daughter's weddings. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, waving his hands. Those people that can't be trusted with things like temptation. Right. That's like also dirty. Mm -hmm. And hilariously to me, parts of the female body that are, how shall I put it, always in fashion (laughs) were... 100% hidden from view. Those things are directly from the devil. Right. So it was into this highly regulated world that first rose, and then two years later, little Nell were born to Papa Thomas, and I'm going to call her Ma Gwyn, because that's what everybody called her. And at some point after that, Papa Thomas landed in debtor's prison, and that's where he died. That left Ma Gwyn as a single mother who moved her small family back into London to settle in the Covent Garden district. Now, lovely. Then, where they were? Not really. 
If this was a movie, there'd be a camera showing the glistening cathedral, and a voice would say, no, not there, turn around, go down that dirty alley to where the impoverished people lived, where the pubs do a loud business, and where crime is rampant, as is filth and disease. And sadly, half the children born into this community wouldn't make it to toddlerhood. That's where Nell was brought. Who even was Nell's mama? Again, a gray area. Helena Smith has been reported to be A, the illegitimate daughter of a nobleman, B, the impoverished but gentlewoman daughter of a clergyman, C, literally a camp follower, i.e. a prostitute who goes where the soldiers go in order to ply their trade. And Oxford had been a rallying place for royalists and it was certainly full of customers. No one... Knows. No. Really. And we don't even know if they were married. I mean, it's highly probable that she just took his name because she was pregnant with his child. And the satirists of Nell's future life seemed to think it's hilarious to say that Ma Gwen couldn't tell who Nell's father was because she had had too many customers to really know. Regardless of who or what Ma Gwen was before she returned to London, she was faced with some grim realities. The economic options open to her were domestic service, which, as the mother of two children, was likely impossible, marriage, but alas, she's already married, so there's another closed door, or the inevitable third option of sex work or associated trades in the underworld of the city. I've read statistics that one in six. That's the high end. Or one in 10 unmarried women in London were prostitutes the year that Ma Gwen brought her children back to London, because that's literally all you could do. It always strikes me as funny when we read these stories about English speaking people and they look, you know, like people now. And we don't think that it's a different culture. So we don't talk about it. But this is a very different culture than our world today. You know, that women, this is just what they did. And Yes, it was looked down upon, but it was also how they fed their families. Well, some tales have her working as a barmaid at a tavern called the Rose Tavern um, at Russell and Catherine Street. I didn't look that up on Google. I, uh, yeah, me neither. Maybe I should. It is Beckett here from the future during the editing process. I went ahead and looked it up and normally I would just leave it be, but it's too good. It's just too good not to tell you right now. At the corner today of Russell and Catherine Street is a candy store whose name, appropriately enough, is Sugar Sin. Yeah, just a little gift from the universe to us. Okay, and now quickly on with the show. And um, she was also probably the go-between between the patrons and some associates, some ladies of negotiable affection that used the rooms upstairs. So there's a whole distinction to be made that she wasn't a brothel keeper. She kept a body house. I'm like, mm. the differences the ladies either did or didn't live in, but functionally it served the same purpose. Right. Later, it would be said of Nell's childhood that she was, quote, brought up in a body house to fill strong waters to the gentlemen. Both sisters at some point, likely when they were very, very small, worked in the tavern. Um, and there's also a strong possibility that both of them took a turn at being oyster girls, or perhaps selling turnips or herrings, some kind of food stuff on the street. Um, you know, they would have their baskets and then they would have their street call, oysters, oysters, fresh oysters. Or remember that song, Molly Malone? 
No. Cockles you... and mussels alive, alive. Oh, that song? <laughs> no, I don't remember that one. <laughs> you don't remember that song? No. What's it from? Okay, everyone write in. I know. I'm so sorry. I got to sing it. In Dublin's fair city where girls are so pretty, there once was a girl named Molly Malone. I don't remember the middle, but then she's like, she would walk through with her basket yelling cockles and mussels okay, alive, I, alive, yes. oh. I recognize a, it now, but I okay. have no idea what it's from. Well, so she's one of those girls. <laughs> so you'd get a stock from the fishmonger and you'd have to pay for it ahead of time, I think. Um, but you'd get a stock and then you'd go around and retail it out. Everyone loved, loved oysters. They were cheap protein. They were plentiful. And the thing is... Everyone liked them from the very, very, very high upper crust in the fancy oyster houses where the silent waiters brought you your vinegar and pepper in fancy individual containers to the street vendors who set up trestle tables in the streets and you could sprinkle your oysters with the communal vinegar bottle to those girls who walked around with their baskets, the cheapest option. I don't know if they had condiments or not. Not clear. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, it's like the hot dog of its era. Everybody indulged at some level in some oysters. In accounts from her time later, she was called Cinder Nell because it's believed that she also sold cinders because they were used as very cheap and weak fuel. But it was just something she could go and clear out cinders from the fire and then go sell them to somebody else that could maybe light them. They're just scraping to make a living here. I mean, quite literally. If the girls were indeed um, street vendors, that was the best possible training for Nell's future career. It required a lot of extroversion. To approach strangers, you had to have um, a carrying voice. You had to have good projection. You had to have personality so the customers would come find you and come back. I mean, you had to persuade people to buy the stock or you would be out of your money, you know? Mm -hmm. They could keep one-sixth of what they sold in money. It seems very specific. Yeah, no kidding. So that was Nell's education. She was illiterate. She never went to any kind of schooling. She couldn't read words, but she could certainly read people at a very young age. And she knew how to charm them, just as a little girl. Now, people are pretty certain that Sister Rose became a prostitute in a nearby brothel by the time she was about 13 or 14. And also unclear, but very possible, and I'm even going to move to probable, that Nell joined in in that business as young as the age of nine or 10. I'm not joking. Um, she was an uncommonly beautiful child in a very poor area with a turbulent and often alcoholic mother for protection. I just don't know that she had much of a chance to get out of there unscathed, if you know what I mean. These two sins, in particular, alcohol and prostitution, were ones that the Puritan rulers hadn't ever managed to stamp out, by the way. They are persistent and underground and sometimes so pervasive that there is just nothing to do but to shove them into one area and pretend you don't see it. And that's what the Puritans decided to do. This is in the Puritan Commonwealth, which is what England was called. But where Nell's growing up, it's just a little dot of seedy underside. But hooray, when Nell was 10 years old, Parliament invited King Charles II back from exile. Cromwell had died about a year and a half ago, and his son just could not hold things together. Part of the deal was that power would be shared by Parliament and the Crown. 
a constitutional rather than absolute monarchy. Also, Charles II agreed to pardon, or at least tolerate, anyone who'd fought against him unless they had signed the death warrant against his father, and then you were for the chop. That's reasonable, sir. Sign here, please. Notably, Oliver Cromwell's body was exhumed by order of the king, chained for public display, and then thrown into a pit, except his head, which stayed on display on a pike outside Westminster Hall for a number of decades as a warning to revolutionaries everywhere. Mm -hmm. The Charles that came back to rule England was not this dandy. You know, he was a guy that had been in war. He was leading revolts against England, except Cromwell's army just kept spanking them, really. He didn't have a lot of money. The whole family had been pretty much palace surfing, you know, from one estate to another of people they knew. They didn't have much. And that's the guy that came back. Charles II had left England when he was a boy of 19, a privileged young man. And he was now a man of 30 who had been through terror, betrayal, exile, deprivation, war, and seen quite a bit, unwillingly, of how the other half lived. And he often noted that it was the poorest people who dug deep to help a stranger and his Catholic subjects who had treated him better than his peers, like other monarchs of Europe. And he never forgot. He never forgot their kindness. And that pretty much explains his religious tolerance. In addition, he just really didn't want any more war. One thing the king did bring back from exile was Mary Old England. Let's spell it M-E-R-R-I-E. Mary Old England, (laughs) which is a different word. Some said it was immoral, his whole thing. He said, obviously, we only live once. The music was back. The dancing, the colors. You can take a walk on a Sunday and not pay a fine. Remarkable. His court was known for its loud and wild behavior. One described it as a pendulum. The Puritans are on one side, and now whoosh, we've swung all the way to the other side. Luckily for the person that said that, the very first clock that had a pendulum had only been invented four years before. (laughs) So perfect. (laughs) I don't even know what to tell you. (laughs) Hooray! Could be the symbol. Charles II got the nickname the Merry Monarch. Now that's just with a Y, sorry. (laughs) And people kept kind of holding their breaths a little, like, is God going to throw a thunderbolt down here? (laughs) And they were cautiously creeping out to join the joyful return to regular old life. He was known for his religious tolerance, his political savvy. He was the patron of scientists and artists and writers and his tendency to mistress having immediately. I mean, I'm talking the day he got there, like the day he arrived and that night everyone was going to hold him a banquet. And he's like, no, thanks. He took up with one noblewoman, one Barbara Palmer. I'm talking the night of his banquet. I can't say that's bad. I went to Brennan's for brunch instead of going to my graduation ceremony from college. It's like, oh, church service. I did go to Catholic University. Church service? No. So Charles and I are agreement there, but I did not have a child nine months afterwards. And he did. It was perfect timing. 
ultimately, Barbara Palmer had more power than the actual queen, who had been a princess from Portugal. Remember that we had talked during the Marie Antoinette podcast about how Marie Antoinette's husband never took an official mistress, and everyone was sort of bewildered walking around. There's no maîtresse en titre or official mistress to ask favors of. Like, where's the pipeline? I don't get it. And they were kind of freaking out. Well, it's like the power structure in Marie Antoinette's court was all messed up. Well, Charles II brought that foreign concept of an official mistress back from France with him, along with the fork, oddly enough. (laughs) (laughs) Not seen since Roman times in England, now back and all the rage. Um, You know, the more religious among his subjects saw it as suspect and immoral. Did God not give us hands with which to hold our food? And wipe our butts? I mean, come on, gross. And the tablecloths, I mean it. They would just wipe their dirty, greasy hands on the tablecloths every day. No wonder they had so many laundresses. But what the fork did this have to do with Nell Gwen? Oh, my God. <laughs> I had to say. Oh, thank you. Okay. Honestly, um, for Nell Gwen in her decrepit area of town, Life likely went on very similarly to the way it had always done in, let's just call it the underworld, except for one major thing that happened two months after the king came back. It's really one of the very first things that Charles did. He reopened the theaters. They had been closed for 18 years. That would be more than Nell's life. She would never knew life with the theater. He had enjoyed the theater when he was in other countries, in France in particular, and he wanted that level of entertainment in England. He commissioned two theaters to open, two different official theaters. They were called patent theaters. They had his blessing and legal protection as the only licensed, except no substitutes, theaters. Now, there were other theaters that were opening up. They could do comedies and like vaudeville kind of shows. But those theaters were for the lower classes. They were not for Charles and his friends. And that's the kind of entertainment he wanted. So there's two theaters. One is the King's Company. It's the Royal Theater on Drury Lane. Gee, that sounds so familiar. I hear the Muffin Man lives there. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the other theater was the Duke's Theater, and that was under the patronage of Charles's brother, James, the Duke of York. So the Duke's House and the Theater Royale. And shock me, shock me, shock me with that deviant behavior. For the first time, women could perform in the public theater. No more would all of the women's parts be played by men like they had been in Shakespeare's time. The official royal patent said this, quote, And for as much as many plays formerly acted do contain several profane, obscene, and scurrilous passages, and the woman's parts therein have been acted by men in the habit of women— We do permit and give leave that all women's parts to be acted in either the said two companies for the time to come may be performed by women, dot, 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 may by such reformation be esteemed not only harmless delights, but useful and instructive representations of human life. So make it look like a real life. Don't have a guy up there dressed in drag. 
Thomas Killigrew's Theater opened in May of 1663, and one of Nell's mama's friends had got the coveted license to sell fruit and candy during the performances. Mary Meggs was her name, but everyone called her Orange Mall. Molly being a common nickname at the time for Mary. Mall needed some pretty saleswomen who could market her wares to the theater audience and give them a bit of cheek by way of entertainment. It took brains, it took bravery, and she knew just who to choose. 13-year-old Nell and her sister Rose were hired to stand with their backs to the stage in this little passageway between the orchestra and the pit and call their wares during a break in the action. Little Nell, she had curly, reddish hair and dimples. She had a very charming personality. The Orange Girls worked six days a week. The theater was closed on Sundays. They wore little white smocks over their dresses and a handkerchief at their necks. They sold only on the lower levels because oranges on the upper levels could be used as projectiles. (laughs) By the uh, peasants in the cheap seats. Right. The box seats weren't that high up in the wall. Remember, like if if you were to imagine, say, on opera theater, you think of these boxes like 20 feet in the air. No, no, they were still very close to the action. Unfortunately, the further you got back in the box seats, the worse you could hear the actors. But you sure could see the Orange Girls. About 700 people per night came to the plays. So everyone can see but maybe not here. (laughs) Um, Dudes would literally wander backstage and harass the actors, um, especially the women. I'm sorry to say for quite some time, male members of the audience could just go back into the dressing area and grab hold of them. That's unfortunate, really. And so they fell in love with these women on the stage and then felt like, oh, these are these are free public access ladies. Mm -hmm. And they would go back and just get all up in their business. Now, some women may not have disapproved of that because one of the venues to escape a life of poverty was to join the theater and find a rich protector. And one of the side businesses these orange girls could do was run messages back and forth to facilitate those type of arrangements. It was a lucrative sideline to selling oranges and probably made them significantly more money. Nell kind of had one of those arrangements herself because around this time, she had her first, uh, I don't want to call him a boyfriend, protector in a man named Robert Duncan. And she had moved out of her mother's place and into rooms that he had rented for her above a pub right down the street from the theater called The Cock and Pie. Now, that would be maybe Peacock Pie, which was an old-timey dish or cockerel, a young rooster, or maybe a magpie, which was right on the sign. So the cock and pie pub is probably not as naughty of a title as it sounds. Well, and I think eel pie was a very common Mm -hmm. thing to have in a pub, too. And also cockfighting would happen in pubs, too. So cock and pie is like a very popular thing. I'm sorry. I'm getting silly. Yes. Let's talk innuendo for the rest of the show. You know what? Nell would not approve of innuendo. She would just say it's the word. That's right. That's true. So we in the modern day are completely astonished that a 12 or 13 year old girl has a grown man as her, quote, protector, who takes her away from her mother's house and sets her up in her own apartment, who met her at her work, most likely. What work? Not sure. Okay. I would like to tell you a horrible fact. The age of consent in England was 12. 
When people got together and started to talk about it, in 1875, they decided that the age had to be raised, and they raised it to 13. Wow, that is such an improvement. Well, the theater itself was a messy business. People were always yelling, dueling, not joking, bantering with the orange girls. By the way, during the performance, is anyone paying attention to my art? <laughs> Um, you know how now we say that somebody has a mouth like a sailor or in my house, a mouth like a chef? <laughs> Back in Nell's day, they said that someone had a mouth like an orange girl. So she had a very colorful vocabulary. <laughs> So here she is, this saucy orange girl in the front of the theater. And Mr. Killigrew, the owner of the theater, was in the audience one fateful day and Talon spotted the 14-year-old Nell for a fast track to the stage. The two leading men of the King's Company, Charles Hart and John Lacey, were two actors who were charged with training Nell to be an actress. Charles Hart was the leading man, and John Lacey was kind of a comedian and a dancer, and they could teach her different things. They taught her how to use the stage as an actor. They taught her how to deliver different styles of lines because they did different kinds of plays. Sometimes there might be a comedy, the next one might be drama, and they had to be delivered in different ways. And the lines that she was learning for these plays that they were going to perform, she was illiterate. So they were giving her the lines and she was just memorizing the plays. That's remarkable to me. That's um, even to this day, of course, how you would teach a child actor. Oh. Um, so it's not completely unheard of. But what patience that was, because this is like Summerstock Theater. And I don't know if anyone here has ever been in Summerstock, but you basically rehearse one thing during the day and roll out the other thing in the evening. You're constantly doing at least two plays a day in your head. And during this time period, plays didn't last very long. Mm -mm. Sometimes they only lasted, like, let's look and see if the audience reacts. And if it didn't go, it was over. And that's the end for that play. So I'm glad you spent your whole evening memorizing all these lines. <laughs> but that's okay, because we're going to have you memorize some more for this new production we're going to start in three days. It's their repertoire. They're keeping these plays in their head in case they have to perform them again for whatever reasons. And she was able to keep all that in her head. She was also able to use all the things that she had learned as an oyster girl, as an orange girl, surviving on the streets. She was able to charm people with her voice and her mannerisms, and she had that X factor that people looked at her on the stage when there was other people there. She was the one that everybody was looking at, and she was picking it up really fast. I'm sorry to say that someone else was looking at her, one of her tutors, Mr. Charles himself, Charles Hart the main actor at the King's Company, took her under his wing and offered her his protection. In the parlance of the restoration that meant, he removed her from her current lodging, established her in his lodgings, split his salary with her, and in exchange for certain services, became her protector. And gross, etc. And the only positive thing I can see about that is he 
staked out his territory and saved her from the other circling weirdos. Mm, Yeah, that's a good point. And he was 30 to her 14. So that's a pretty big age gap, although at the time it wasn't as significant as it might be to us. Again, there's that cultural thing. We have to learn their culture. Actors at this time began to be associated with certain roles or certain types of roles. They began to be stars. People would come out to see their favorites regardless of what the play was. I'm reminded of um, the silent movie era Mm. where there was just that sheer volume of titles. You couldn't get too attached to the movie because there was going to be another one on Friday, you know. (laughs) Um, So you'd come out to see Mary Pickford or Douglas Fairbanks or or whoever. You want to come see your favorite, whatever they're doing, you know, Mm -hmm. Meg Ryan in Sleepless in Seattle in Shop around the corner. She always played the same kind of person, you know? Right, right. So that kind of thing. It's not unheard of. But Nell Gwynn began to become known um, shortly after her first appearance on the stage. Just her hair helped. Her mannerisms helped. And she and her friend, man friend, Charles Hart, soon became famous for sort of a bantering, antagonistic couple act. Well, they fell in love at the end. It's kind of like... Hepburn and what's his name? Spencer Tracy. That's exactly what I was just going to say. That witty banter and that comfortable camaraderie that they had, which, quite frankly, was probably developed off stage and under the covers. Comedy was where her talents truly lay. Her skill at improv often came in handy. You know, the sheer number of plays that you were expected to do. Sometimes if you're on stage and you forgot a line, didn't it help if you were good and quick on the uptake, you know, Mm -hmm. and could play it off. The audience didn't know. The audience was not familiar with these plays most of the time. So if you made something up with a convincing aura, it's probably fine. That totally makes sense because you just deliver the line that you think should go there with conviction. Right. And part of the shtick of restoration comedy is that Nell played a character within a character functionally. So she played Nell, who would bring the audience into the joke with her a lot. You know, no one else could make the audience a part of the action like she could. It seemed like everyone knew her. Everyone Mm -hmm. was her friend. It was just like she had that indefinable rapport with the audience. Right. She kind of broke the fourth wall in some ways. You know, just a quick glance out to the audience, she connected with them. It was like if you and I, good friends, had a look that we understood, she's doing the same thing with an entire audience. Right. Diarist Samuel Pepys wrote that he had seen Pretty Witty Nell and became sort of medium obsessed with her in a disturbing way. Can't wait for you to read the parts of his diary. It's worth (laughs) reading. It is worth reading. We're going to give you a link about it. The sexism will blow you away, though I'm warning you now. And probably give you a nice, uncomfortable foundation to put Nell's life in perspective, honestly. If this is how the average middle-class man on the street was thinking about women and life in general, Mm -hmm. help all the women. Help them all, you know? Nonetheless, um, he kept the diary for a number of years and wrote both about mundane things and major events because he worked for the government. And so his diary gives you a great picture of what life was like in Restoration London from his place right in the middle. And he had a lot to write about. 
beginning with the hijinks of the king and his court. Charles was doing a lot of king duties. He also has, at this point, taken a wife. He has to. He needs an heir. The wife that he chose was Catherine of Braganza. She was a 24-year-old Portuguese princess whose own father, King John IV, he was kind of like Charles in that he took a really circuitous route to the throne. He had been a duke who staged an uprising against the former Spanish rule. But this alliance with Portugal gave England trade routes to India and Morocco. And in Catherine's case, she also came with a very healthy dowry, which at this point, Charles really needed too. Not to put too fine a point on it, she was also a Catholic. So it was almost like he was putting his money where his mouth is when it came to tolerance Mm -hmm. of Catholic religion. Right, because there's a king who's Protestant and a queen who's Catholic. You know, who's going to complain? Nobody. Everybody. (laughs) Now, somebody that did complain was Catherine's mother. Charles was already known as having a lot of mistresses. At the time that they married, he had five children that he recognized by four different women. And he was having his second child with his favorite mistress, the former Barbara Palmer, who was now the Countess of Castlemaine and still married to her husband, the new Earl of Castlemaine. But they're having a very healthy relationship, and they were even together the day that Catherine arrived from Portugal to England. Catherine's mother was fully aware of how active Charles was with other women, and she sat Catherine down and said, do not tolerate this. You have to put your foot down. You are going to be queen. You have to tell him to stop all this shenanigans with all these other women. But Catherine didn't really have the backbone for that. And when Charles came to her with his number one lady, Barbara, Wanting Barbara to have a status position in court as the lady of the bedchamber to the new queen, poor Catherine didn't know what to do. She just fainted dead away. Like, literally, she fainted and started crying and kind of tried to hold out. And he just kept taking things away from her. Like, all the people that spoke her language, he sent them away. And eventually, she just said, fine, fine, give this woman the job that she wants. I want peace in my house. And that was kind of Catherine's first step to acceptance of the life of her husband. Well, uh, you know, it's very sad. And I think the humiliation was great, especially for a young princess with really no support in her new country. Mm -hmm. I don't certainly think it was unprecedented. I mean, there was a series of imagine, you know, Jane Seymour and Anne Boleyn were both maids of honor to Mm -hmm. Catherine of Aragon. So... It happens, has happened. Mm -hmm. It's not awesome. No. And again, there's this double standard in society that these men, it's a status symbol for them to have a mistress, but to be the actual mistress isn't, you know, not that great. So Barbara was extraordinarily cunning and driven and wanted more power. So she was probably playing head games on Charles. She was actually increasingly, as her career grew, Famous for being, and I quote, the uncrowned queen of England. She interfered in politics like nobody's business. Maybe someday we'll cover her from her side. We're going to paint her probably to be the evil stepsister from a Disney movie or whatever because of how we do. We're always on the side of our subject. But, you know, um, 
there's a lot of humanity in her too. Everyone's struggling to survive, mm. you know? Yeah. So that was just her particular road. Yes. So relations within court were fraught. And soon war broke out again, still with the Netherlands, um, mostly about trade routes. This is the series of wars, in fact, that turned New Amsterdam into New York for a little place in history. Nice. Um, named after Charles II's Brobro, the Duke uh, of York. Yep. So there's this stress, this worldwide conflict stress underlying the next decades, honestly, off and on, with the king trying to navigate major conflicts with major enemies in the world. Mm -hmm. But this right here at this time period, like he needed other things to worry about, was one of the very acute times in that period that there was active and vicious combat happening. Now, hard on the heels of this trouble, a silent killer began stalking England, brought there by the rats from the ships of war. The plague had hit England. If you contracted it, there was headache and vomiting and fever. You had a 30% chance of death. And if it was in the house that you were in, the house was marked on the outside and sealed up. So everybody is stuck, really stuck in the house. There's no walking at sunset or anything. We do have a good account of what London was like because Peeps, in his capacity as an essential worker at the Naval Office, um, remember the war was still happening. He gives a full account of the grim and deserted streets with the dreaded red crosses over the doors, sealed up by the authorities after an infection, the screams and cries of the people inside that were muffled, people that were walking down the street just collapsing right and left as you walk down the street and left because there weren't people to take care of them all the time. The smell grew exponentially so bad that you could almost not smell it anymore. It was a terrible, terrible death, and it was terrible to witness. London streets became deserted as people succumbed or fled. And that's exactly what the king did. The king and his court fled to Oxford, where it was safer. And his theater company, the King's Theater, that troupe, which Nell is a part of, followed him to Oxford. So she and her mother were in Oxford during the plague time, safe but not performing as much as she had been when they were in London. During the period of time when the theaters were closed in June and the onset of winter, the year Nell was 15, one in five Londoners were dead of the plague. That's 20% of the citizens gone. So not only a significant loss of life, that's cultural trauma. Mm -hmm. You know, surely everyone left knew someone that didn't make it. And the cleanup, which I will not get into, also quite, quite terrible. The court came back to London in February after the cleansing nature of a cold, hard winter. And the gears are kind of grinding back into action. Nell's career came roaring back as the theater opened. She turned 16 that spring and by now had famous playwrights writing parts and plays just for her to play to her comedic strengths. Much has been made of how she was no good in a tragedy. Mm -hmm. And I need to explain a little bit about 
that. So in a comedy, it's kind of a free for all, you know, like a comedy was loose by nature. But in classic tragedy, there were some conventions that Nell's free style of acting ran up against. And let's call it choreography. Certain words had to be said with certain hand gestures. Certain gestures indicated sadness. Certain indicated that I will overcome, you know, mm-hmm. and there was another whole language you had to learn. The tone of voice was different. And I've said this and I don't remember in what episode before, but there was someone during Fiddler in the Roof who literally said her line like this. But Papa, I don't want to marry him. <laughs> And then clasped her hands on her heart. Now, she would have done well in Restoration London. That's what it was. It was a little stiffer. There was not so much um, scope for the imagination. If you ask me, by the way, this tradition came back to the silent film era. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. For it, sure. was an, it was language audiences had been primed to understand. This reminds me of a situation I just heard of on The Office Ladies. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, you know, The Office. Mm-hmm. By about season three, I mean, they didn't have marks. They didn't really improv, but it was pretty loose. And they did a lot of different takes and blah, 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 and played around. And then toward the end, after Steve Carell had left, they imported James Spader. You know James Spader. Mm -hmm. Like everyone's bad heartthrob from Pretty in Pink. Like Blaine. (laughs) Blaine the kitchen appliance or whatever. The bad guy. So that guy came in and he's a great actor and very professional, but he always wanted to rehearse. But where is my mark? What are my motivations? And they're like, we don't really do that. Yeah. <laughs> but when's rehearsal? They're like, <laughs> um, mm, we don't have. And he and they did not really mesh, you know. Right. And that's kind of what happened with Nell and tragedy. Like everybody's good, but nothing's translating. You know, it just mm-hmm. wasn't a good fit. Well, she was good at, like you said, improvisation, but she was really good at taking little comments that weaving them into uh, the dialogue that were actually comments about society, you know, gossip that she had heard about society. She veiled it and stuck it in there. There was even a point where she looked fully at, you know, broke the fourth wall, looked at the audience and said, I know you and your hearts hate serious plays as I hate serious parts. (laughs) So is it Nell or is it Nell's character? Well, that was the joy. That was the thrill. Like you thought Nell was giving you a little backstage knowledge Mm -hmm. like another strange convention of comedy at this time played to some of her other strengths for some reason the female characters on stage would often have to appear in male clothes as a plot device hmm and what were male clothes at the time well sort of short pantaloons and skin tight tights Ooh, a real lady person in skin tight tights on stage. Be still my beating heart. Well, Nell had some of the best legs in the biz. Yeah, that's right. They were actually called breeches rolls, and they loved putting Nell into them because she didn't mind flashing a little. You know, it's covered by fabric, but as far as everybody is concerned, she's flashing her legs. They're seeing thigh. Oh, my goodness. No wonder dudes sent messages and jewels backstage. Nell had literally blown their minds. Mm -hmm. 
part of her job was actually very similar to actors today is getting their brand out there and going out and being seen in public. You know, there was no entertainment tonight or whatever, Mm -hmm. but there were the scandal rags. And if they were seen out doing things, dressed fancy, you know, they were just building up their persona and making themselves even more popular. And that's something that Nell excelled at. Also, she was just kind of herself out, mm-hmm. the exact herself that they saw on stage, you know? Right, right. So when they saw her, they're like, oh, I know her. We talked just yesterday. Right. She knows me. Yeah, that's right. And they knew that she was one of them. You know, yes, the theater audiences were more of the upper classes, but she came from the streets. She was a common person and she never was putting on airs. So she was relatable to a lot of people. So while Nell's career was really on fire, something else was on fire, too. In September of 1666, a fire started in Pudding Lane in a bakery that began to spread. Fanned by a strong east wind, it burned for four days and ended up eating up most of the old city of London within the walls, sparing only kind of a a crescent at the northeast right by the Tower of London and and up, largely due to the soldiers in the tower blowing things up to create a fire break. Mm -hmm. That's what saved them. We learned on our field trip to London that the city of London um, within the walls was a separate and quasi-independent place, like Washington, D.C., kind of. Mm -hmm. And they resisted for far too long the king's offers of help from the army. People were sort of in denial for a long time. They would kind of scurry from block to block until it finally became absolutely clear they needed to get out of the city center, out of the walls entirely. And then, of course, it was a battle between outgoing refugees and incoming firefighters. Well, the official death toll from the Fire of London was eight. And pretty much no one believes that. Historians now take exception to that very, very small number because they say the extreme heat from this well-fueled fire could have consumed everything. I mean, even people and left absolutely no trace. Right. Plus, there was a lot of misinformation and, and very late realization of the people's danger. And a lot more people were likely trapped than were reported, you know? Yeah. And these houses were so close together and they were families. A lot of them, like Nell's, the one she grew up in, So if Nell and her sister and her mom had perished in a fire with nothing to show for it, would anybody have missed them? You know, how can you count them if you don't even think about them? Does that make sense? Right. No, that makes total sense. Also, about 200,000 more people were now homeless without shelter or food. And winter was coming, not in the Game of Thrones sense, like actual human winter was coming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, so do we count those refugees? Do we count people who starved to death because they didn't have any food? Well, the king wanted those people to move on out. And that's not as callous as it sounds. I mean, there wasn't a way to house them. So he issued an edict that all towns must accept those refugees and assist in their housing. So... I mean, that's what you can do on the fly, you know. Right. Well, of course, the theaters were closed again while he dealt with this crisis. 
And there were great plans to rebuild in a more majestic style, you know, like Paris had been rebuilt. But the legalities of property rights and seizure were just too troublesome. And the English weren't standing for it. (laughs) And no, this is my land. Okay, fair enough. They did widen the streets. They forbade the use of wooden construction. There are a handful of existing buildings left from the Great Fire of London. Most are made of stone or were wooden buildings that had been protected within stone walls. Some were wooden buildings, notably the old curiosity shop made so famous by Charles Dickens, that just missed annihilation by a matter of yards. We'll give you a link to a map of them if that's a quest you'd like to go on. But mostly, as you looked around, it was unbelievable and complete destruction. Rumors caught fire now that the Catholics from the southern Netherlands had started this fire on purpose and stoked the flames of anti-Catholic sentiment in England. I really cannot say enough how dangerous it was to be a Catholic right here after the fire. And for a couple of centuries, really, it was not awesome because of this. Every tragedy needs a scapegoat, I guess. And people just simultaneously, quote, knew that it was a fire at Farinor's Bakery. They got out of control mm, at right. some level that, that, yes, indeed. But they also, quote, knew that the Catholics probably said it on purpose in that bakery to trick us into thinking <laughs> it was simply a bakery fire. Right. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Or at least they were happy it happened. Fork them. Let's fight. <laughs> Fork them. So there is a societal undercurrent of religious violence happening from about now. Unfortunate, because we were so close. Mm. to pull in ourselves together. There was another rivalry that was heating up. Rivalry between the two theater companies. Duke's Company versus King's Company. The Duke's Company had its own personable comedy actress, one Maul Davis, sort of directly competing with our Nell for the prime spot in their company. Now, Nell actually may have been talent spotted to go up against existing Maul. That's what people think. Like Mr. Uh-huh. Killigrew was sitting in his audience and went, oh, ho, there's one. Yep. And he was looking, you know, when you're shopping for something particular in a thrift store, you see it. Yeah. And I think he had, I need someone like this in his mind. And then immediately saw Nell right in front of him. Mm, interesting. Like she was his spelling word. Oh. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. So Maul Davis performed in a show in front of the king. And she had a very famous song. And here are some of the lyrics. My lodging is on the cold ground and very hard is my fare. But that which troubles me most is the unkindness of my dear. Yet still I cry. Oh, turn, love, and I prithee, love, turn to me, for thou art the man that I long for, and alack, what remedy? Okay, that song won her, if not the heart, at least the bed of a king. (laughs) He took Maul Davis as a mistress, and everyone fell apart, and out and out, commoner? Barbara Palmer had been born a gentleman's daughter, and her husband is a baron. Who is this person? Right. The upper crust kind of got boggled. But you know what I like about her? She has no interest in politics, said the king, and she has no interest in bossing me around. And I can see him pointing at his eyes and pointing straight at Barbara Palmer. Give me a break. Give me a break. (laughs) Right, right. Nell was irritated at that attention that was given her rival. So now her rival has the attention of the king and also the attention of the public. You know, that's a big deal. 
And so Nell had a playwriter friend write a pretty mean girl rebuttal to Maul Davis's famous song. And I'm sorry to say she was mocking Maul Davis's fuller figure. But every single person who heard this knew to whom and of what it referred. Here's Nell's version. My lodging, it is on the cold boards and wonderful heart is my fare. But that which troubles me most is the fatness of my dear. And still I cry, O oh, melt love, and I pray thee now melt apace. For thou art the man I should long for, if twere not for my grease. <laughs> so Nell Gwyn. As my mother would give her the middle name, Nell Eldritch Gwynn. <laughs> what are you saying? Well, you know, that figure won her the love of a king. Not the love, mm, 200 pounds a year, jewels, and a house, and curtain. Well, the Dutch attacked the English Navy. They set fire to a lot of ships and stole a famous one. And again, King Charles's first instinct was to close down the theaters. That seems to be his instant reaction to any crisis. And so back at Nell's house, her protector, Charles Hart, had taken up with the king's mistress, Barbara. <laughs> or she had revenge taken up with the most famous actor in town. See, king boyfriend, I too can dumpster dive for my bedfellow. That's kind of like what it was. Yeah, I just want to throw in here that Barbara has a lot of friends like Charles and like the king. She but is this seemed pretty, direct. Yeah, you know, that was direct, but otherwise she's fairly indiscriminate. You know, it's like, oh, I like the way your eyes are flirting at me. Come to bed, you know? Well, and let me tell you this. So she had at least six living children and the first five are recognized by the king and in some cases ennobled by him, but he was in no way 100% certain that any of those children 23 and me not yet having been invented were right. his at all she actually bullied and cajoled him into recognizing each and every one of them by the time they got to the sixth one i'm jumping way way ahead but just to put it here because it fits her way by the time they got to the sixth one he put up a fight and they had a pretty major hey ho run below about it you know mm -hmm. but the first five he's like yeah okay you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fitzroy. Yeah. It's Fitzroy. <laughs> Son of the king. Says it's right. Well, gross and dang for everyone, by the way. It just seems like a mess. But Nell had never lacked admirers. And rather than put up with whatever entangled nonsense this was pretending to be in her house right now, she was not about it. She reached out to a young nobleman who had admired her, Charles, Lord Buckhurst, member of parliament, gentleman of the king's bedchamber, and soon gentleman of Nell's bedchamber. Oh, so clever. <laughs> so because of war, the theaters were closed and the troop was kind of scattered around. It was summertime and Nell and Charles II, as she called him. That's a little confusing for us, since there literally is a Charles II king on the throne, Mr. Bigwig himself. So Buckhurst is her Charles II. And guess who is her Charles III? Charles II. That's later. Spoiler alert. As for Buckhurst, life with him was nothing but a party. Well, they, and so they kind of took up together. They entertained. They had parties. They frolicked quite a bit. They went to a fashionable spa town called Epsom. Yes, the same as Epsom Salts. So she and Buckhurst went there and then Peeps the Creep, Stalker, 
literally took his wife there casually on purpose to catch a glimpse of Nell. He wrote about it in his diary and disapprovingly referred to Nell and Buckhurst keeping a merry house. You're just jealous, dude. Yeah, oh, totally. Buckhurst was a seriously drunken frat bro of the Kings. He was about a decade younger and ran with this group of dudes called the Wits, but they were I... <laughs> were they? I mean, they... Some of them did write plays, but they also peed off of balconies onto people and like yeah. ran naked down the street. They were in, they were a mess, by yeah. the way. And they always got bailed out by the king. Right. Well, so anyway, that's the kind of guy he was. Yeah. <laughs> Badly behaved, charming, handsome prep school boy with powerful parents, you know? Yeah. Anyway, Nell at 17 was pulled into this whirlwind adventure. It's her first peek behind the curtain at wealth and privilege. And he paid for nice clothes and they had the finest of foods and there were no responsibilities. And I mean, everybody needs a break like that. A yeah. Bit. I mean, that does sound fun. <laughs> I don't know about the peeing off the buildings and stuff, but. Well, that was before he met her. Uh, He's not that man anymore. Oh, Yes. Except for he was later, but just like right, maybe yeah, right now. He's like taking a break from all that just because of Nell. <laughs> After a few months, Nell was back. Uh, you know, they used to fight all the time. And word is, ooh, you know, he threw her out because she spent too much money. The fact is, it was just, it was time. And she came back. There's only so much of that you can take. Plus, he was kind of unreliable. And she came back and went back to her theater company. And they welcomed her back with open arms. Buckhurst had been a lot. Which she sort of knew, honestly. But why now, now that the wheels are turning, from the throne of the stage, could she not shop around for another protector with all of his good qualities, i.e. free spending and connections, but none of his bad qualities, one with a little bit of staying power? Court was retiring to a spa town called Tunbridge Wells in order for the queen to drink the healing waters and ideally produce an heir to the throne, despite his numerous and public affairs and many, many illegitimate children, King Charles II was very loyal in many ways to his wife, at least to her status. He would never put her aside or divorce her. He stayed by her side when she was ill. The queen herself had been moved to invite both the duke's company and the king's company to entertain the court while they were visiting there. There were two notable incidents during that trip to Tunbridge Wells, and they have entered the realm of folklore <laughs> and rumor, but say a lot about the characters involved. As people say, all of the people acted characteristically in these stories, so they might be true. Maul Davis was evidently bragging here and there about a ring the king had given her, her dresses, this, that, the king, me, 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 me. And she was irritating the denizens of both theater companies and the court. Actually, the queen and Barbara Palmer had actually walked out of a performance of hers for her pornographic dancing. People were over her a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Anti-Maul at the moment. So here's the story. 
Now Maul was bragging because she was going to have dinner with the king. That's right, dinner with their clothes on. And Nell could not take it anymore. So she invited Maul to tea. A little backstory. Nell had become very good friends with a female up-and-coming writer. She was writing plays. Her name is Afra Ben, and she was also a spy. And I'm not going to say anything else about her because we have to cover her. But Afra had given Nell a powder from the jollop weed. And Nell took this powder and put it in Maul's snack. So I looked this weed or root, I'm not sure which part of the plant the powder was from, up in an old pharmacopoeia just to see what the heck we were dealing with. And I just want to read you the information that it provides for the physician. Jollop is an irritant which operates energetically, occasioning profuse liquid stools with griping, useful in all cases where it is desirable to produce the energetic influence on the bowels or to obtain large evacuations. <laughs> evacuations. <laughs> Nell was just patting herself on the back as she's watching Maul consume all of these pastries that she had given her, waving goodbye to her, have a nice date with the king, knowing full well that that evening... That there were going to be profuse evacuations. (laughs) Now, what do you think about this? I mean, poisoning your romantic rival is actually not very cool. Can we agree? Yes, I actually wrote there, not cool Nell. That's what I wrote in my notes. I mean, everyone was kind of sick of her. Not that it excuses, you know, giving someone drugs that Uh actually, given in quantity, could have killed her. Right. Um, Didn't. Hooray. Um, But it's all fun and games until someone dumb and dumberers the bathroom, you know? Or bridesmaids. Uh, oh, I, I forgot that was in yeah, that movie. That was yeah. I never laughed so hard. I, was, so Nell thought it was funny, and Susan thought it was funny. Well, okay, what do I, you think, <laughs> everyone? It was funny on the screen, not like in real life. I would feel terrible. It wasn't cool, Nell. Clever, but not cool. Well, let's move on to a slightly better story. Again, unconfirmed, but characteristic of all parties. Nell was at the theater watching the other company, the Duke's company. She was not on deck at the moment. And she encountered the king and his little bro pretending to be incognito. But come on. Yeah. They repaired to a tavern afterwards for drinking and dining. And when it came time to pay the bill... There was that comedy standby of patting one's pockets. The king looked at his brother. The brother looked at the king. They didn't have any money. Of course not. So Nell looked at both of them. And then, because she's an actress, she mimicked the king using one of his favorite phrases and said, Odd fish, this is the poorest company I ever was in, as she paid the bill. (laughs) Now, that's funny. Well. That is funny. Thus began the relationship between Nell and the king. At first, it was sort of a friends with benefits situation, I think. But as the influence of Barbara Palmer waned, her political machinations and her temper had sort of finally got to him a little. Nell was in the ascendancy. More and more people flocked to see the king's mistress in her theater. She received top billing. She received a private dressing room. The attention was intoxicating. 
as Nell's star was rising even higher as she had this relationship with the king, she switched from being Miss Nell Gwyn to Mrs. Now, the name Mrs. wasn't used at the time just to mean a married person. It was used as a title of respectability, and a Miss was suggested to be a looser woman. Much was made at the time of Nell's faithfulness to the king. It was actually kind of the butt of jokes in marked contrast to Barbara's history, which I would say is normal, right? Like mm-hmm. to be loyal to one's boyfriend, though it certainly did not go the other way. Um, more on that in a minute. Nell and everyone started to refer to herself as his country mistress. She taught him how to fish, or did she? Because he was not having very good luck. And so she had him distracted by looking at something and then got out of their picnic basket fried fish and put them on the end of his line (laughs) so that he was successful at last, but not fooled. And he thought that was hilarious. Yes. They went to the races. They wandered the towns in their old clothes and talked to the villagers. The king had Christopher Wren build her a house in Haymarket for the racing. They swam in the River Fleet, which in those days before sanitation, I'm going to say no thank you. Mm -mm. Yeah. Especially because there's no antibiotics either. That's true. Charles found her uncomplicated, fun. She was a breezy person who saw him as a man, a powerful man, but a man. I mean, she called his little brother, the Duke of York, called him Dismal Jimmy. And Dismal Jimmy does not really have a sense of humor, but also still kind of liked her in that introvert way that people do. Like, I will consent to be in your orbit. Right. <laughs> that for him was might as well have been like, I love you. That's right. <laughs> and you know what? More importantly, Nell had zero opinions on policy, mm-hmm. really, or how he should conduct himself on the world stage. Painters began to capture her portrait. Was it a true likeness? I don't know. But King Charles had a relatively unclothed portrait of her hidden behind a more respectable portrait in his chamber. And one creeper peeps had that same picture behind a picture at his workplace. She was like a gas station calendar. She was completely naked. What are you talking about? (laughs) Relatively unclothed. She like had a piece of fabric and that was it. (laughs) That's true. Well, anyway, she was such a fixture in his life, like a known, notable, regular part of his existence, that when the king's sister, known as Minette, who had grown up at the court in France, and she was now a duchess, brought Nell gifts and greetings. She also brought trouble, though she didn't ever know it. One of Minette's ladies-in-waiting, a noblewoman by the name of Louise de Carraway, attracted the king's attention. No hijinks ensued, and the lady left the country. Whew. Yeah, just wait a minute. But Nell didn't have to get involved in any of that drama because she was pregnant. She was pregnant with Charles's child. And on May 8th, 1670, at the age of 20, she gave birth to the king's son, naming him Charles, one of four sons of the king named Charles. Uh, Now, we say that, but you know how many descendants of Queen Victoria are named Victoria? A lot. Yes. Okay. I mean, it makes sense. You name a child after their father. It's very traditional. Yeah. The gifts for this baby rolled in from 
aristocrats from all over. Ambassadors in England were giving her gifts for this baby. That's how recognized she is as his mistress. That's right. And sadly, Queen Catherine is having miscarriage after miscarriage, and she just is unable to carry a child to term. Young Charles, baby Charles, was not given a surname, not even the Fitzroy, which means son of the king, the code name that some of his other half-brothers and sisters were given at birth. Hmm. Very interesting. Well, shortly after Charles's sister had returned home to France, she died suddenly, and her household was dispersed. Now, possibly the French king saw an opportunity, because he wrote later, the English king is greatly influenced by his women. So maybe he placed Louise here, or maybe Charles reached out asking about Louise de Caraway. But either way, she arrived, soon to be installed both in the English queen's household, what a pattern, mm-hmm. and also in King Charles's bed. I don't get any of this. Okay. And I guess maybe no one was in love, but did no one have feelings? Well, okay. Louise was very close to Minette. She was in her household for a very long time. So Charles and Louise were able to grieve together in a way that Queen Catherine mm-hmm. or Nell couldn't support Charles during this time. So I think that's one of the reasons that they were drawn together. And do I think the King of France was behind it? Absolutely. There's no question in my mind. Yeah. Well, and you know, maybe Nell did have feelings of some sort. Number one, for self-preservation, because she looks at what has just happened here and Well, okay, then. So she decided she was going to go back to the stage, even as the mother of the king's child. And when asked about it, she said, well, I need to earn money to live. Ooh, (laughs) said the public. Was it a tactic? I don't know. Yes, we know. We know. And Charles bought it. And he also bought her a house. He rented her a house first. Mm. And then he bought her a house (laughs) across the park from his palace at Whitehall and secured her a pension. Tactic effective. Nell, for her entire life, had had to hustle to, you know, just survive and put food on her table and clothes on her back. So going back to the theater, I think, probably had a lot of appeal because she could feel independent in case something would happen where the king would dump her. Because at this point, the king and Barbara's relationship is really fizzling out. But he is such a guy, he gives her yet another title. At this point, his parting gift to her is the title of Duchess of Cleveland, and he had given her Henry VIII's Nunsuch Palace, as well as a pension, and he let her keep them. Nunsuch Palace, we always, oh, it was magnificent, and it doesn't exist anymore. You know why it doesn't exist? Because Barbara had it taken apart piece by piece and sold to raise money. Mm-hmm. So Barbara is responsible for the death of that palace, of Henry VIII's, that we will never see. Right. So we don't like her in this story. When it's her story, we'll love her. (laughs) Yeah, I see why she had to do that. She needed money. (laughs) Well, Nell kept her house lively with musicians and actors and poets and writers. And the atmosphere was jolly and light. And the king was drawn there to escape the formalities of his palace and his court. So I guess Nell was his, what, vacation girlfriend? I don't know. 
There were plenty of servants there to take care of them, a nice garden, room for entertaining. She took to redecorating like a duck to water. I mean, she'd never had that opportunity before. Right. And the major piece of furniture that she had installed in her house was custom made for the king and for Nell. It was a bed made of silver with carvings of cupids and birds and the king. Some of the more cynical observers wondered if she was putting her money into valuable metals because it was a pretty heavy bed. Mm -hmm. And that's a way to secure your future in case something happened. But whatever. She didn't care. It was a one of a kind thing for a one of a kind relationship. That's right. She even had a pan made that you put hot coals in and run it in the sheets to warm up the sheets before you get into it. And it was made out of silver and it was inscribed and it said, fear God, serve the king. Oh, there you go. (laughs) She had she had floor to ceiling mirrors put in her reception area. I mean, she liked the sparkles. There's no question. She loved that bling. Nell was kind of smart here, too. She wanted to own the house on paper. You know, she knew that the king had bought it so she could live there, but she wanted her name on the deed. Her thinking was that she wanted it to be free from the crown because she had been free with the crown. And it took a couple of years, but eventually the house was put in her own name solely. So Nell did retire from her career in the theater at the tender age of 21. We are still at 21. And within a year, she gave birth to her second son, named James for his uncle James. That's Bro-Bro, also known as Dismal Jimmy. You know, I have to say, he was probably touched by that at some level. He was equal parts absolutely repelled and intrigued by her. Yeah, I know, right? Um, Poor old thing. Yeah. Um, There was, however, a definite rivalry between the noble Louise de Caraway and the orange girl, Nell. Nell loved to poke at her and called her Cartwheel because, like, whatever. Or Mrs. Carwell. A lot of people called her Mrs. Carwell because they couldn't say her actual French name. And then anytime her taunts made the lady upset, she would call her the Weeping Willow. But Louise got her own back because Louise was given a suite of 24 rooms at Whitehall Palace. Louise had been made a duchess and it didn't really matter that the public hated Louise. The general public had hated Barbara, too. And now Louise, both Catholic for one thing and not relatable for another. The people hated Louise so much that at one point they saw the king's carriage going through the streets and they saw started yelling at it, thinking that Louise was in it. Catholic whore, Catholic whore. And it's Nell in the carriage, not Louise. So she has the driver stop. She pops her head out and she says, pray good people, be civil. I am the Protestant whore. And with that, the crowd just started cheering. This was their girl. They were so happy. (laughs) That's how she was viewed by the public. They loved her. I just think it's so funny that she talked to them like that. It just yeah. makes me laugh. Well, she's one of them. You know, yeah. she's used to talking to crowds from the stage. It's like one of her asides from the stage. The court, for the most part, hated Louise, too, by the way, as an instrument of the French. Another diarist, this time a noblewoman named Madame Sevigny, 
wrote of Caraway, Caraway saw well her way and has made everything she wished for come to pass. She wanted to be the mistress of the King of England and behold, he now shares her couch before the eyes of the whole court. She wanted to be rich and she's heaping up treasures and making herself feared and courted. But she did not foresee that a low actress was to cross her path and to bewitch the king. She's powerless to detach him. He divides his money, his time and his health between the pair. The low actress is as proud as the duchess, whom she jeers at, mimics, and makes game of. She braves her to her face, and often takes the king away from her and boasts that she is the best love of the two. She's young, of madcap gaiety, brazen, debauched, and ready-witted. Hmm. That would take that as such a compliment. A tiny bit more Louise news. Once, Louise thought she was going to be witty and bring the heat. And so she looked at Nell one day, Nell in a new gown, and said, oh, you're fine enough to be a queen. To which Nell said, you are right, madam, and I am whore enough to be a duchess. And then she curtsied (laughs) to the duchess. People would not give Louise precedence sometimes. She's a duchess, but often women, especially, would say right to her face, titles that are the result of prostitution are not recognized in polite society. Womp, womp, womp. Also, the king gave her syphilis. Poor Louise has had a hard time. I know. <laughs> Louise was having a tough time, but um, laughing all the way to the bank, I guess, decide what's important. Now, something else Louise got, both Louise's son and Barbara's eldest son were made dukes. But not Nell's. Nell's son, for years, they didn't even have last names. They were just Master Charles and Master James. And while she may have wanted a title for herself, she needed them, her sons, to have titles. And Charles could give them because they were also his sons. Now, Charles is very active in the lives of these kids. One day he had come over and Nell said to her son, Charles, come here, you little bastard. Your father wants to see you. And Charles called her out on it. You're calling our son a bastard? And she said, your majesty has given me no other name with which to call him. A month later, he was given the title of Earl of Burford, Baron Headington, with a surname of Beauclair. The younger son, James, was not given a title. Maybe Charles had plans to do that later, but he wasn't a Fitzroy and he wasn't a Fitzcharles. He got to share the last name of his brother, that being Beauclair, so James Beauclair. So Nell kept going to the theater as an audience member, and everyone would stand up and cheer on stage two. In fact, the theaters waived her ticket fee. She was so lucrative a draw, she brought her wealthy friends, and she brought the public. The livelier members of court would all end up at Nell's house alongside the livelier members of the theater. How awesome is that? Sounds like the best kind of rooftop party in New York City. It does. She loved to entertain. She threw what she called supper parties. Peeps wrote out the menu for one that he had attended. Fricassee of rabbit and chickens, a leg of mutton, boiled, three carps on a dish, a great dish of side of lamb, a dish of roasted pigeons, a dish of four lobsters, three tarts, and a lamprey pie, a dish of anchovies, all served on Nell's solid silver serving pieces, embossed with the initials E.G., Her own initials. She had them all over her silver. (laughs) And, you know, people are seriously lacking in fiber. Lots of protein. And vitamin 
like all vitamins. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe the vegetables and fruits were too low to mention and the protein was the star of the day. But I'm like, there's a garden out back, you know. Yeah. Go eat a nasturtium or something. (laughs) Holy moly. I always wonder that about old menus. Yeah. I know, I know, but Elizabeth the first was very fond of what they called salad, S A L L E T. Mm-hmm. So maybe that had vegetables in it, or maybe it was just a whole bunch of fish eyes with dressing. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, Who knows? I don't know. But she is throwing these parties and Charles is there with her at these parties. And Charles is using her house as a secret meeting place because Whitehall, where he lived, every room had ears. But at Nell's house, it didn't. So if he ever needed to talk to somebody on the sly, he just invited him over to Nell's house and she got out her silver service. Well, nevertheless, peep this next sentence. (laughs) The king got hold of a new noble mistress, yes, which freaked Louise out excessively. But Nell, not at all. It seems like she had her reputation. She had her house. She had her pension. She had her people. And this new lady was a notorious bedhopper. So equal there. Who cares about a title? She can't claim to be better than me. Right. She's nice enough. What does it matter to me? She actually dressed mockingly in black, to mourn Louise's career. Yes. (laughs) She threw a lot of those mourning events where she was in mourning for different things, you know, just sly and backbitey. The king's personal life at this point, Barbara is not so much around as being paid, but her children were there. He still had the queen taking up his house. He still had Louise. He had this new woman named Hortense. And then he had Nell and he had the war in the background and he had all kind of madness. And the king's personal life was sort of a circus. It's his own fault, we can say. But once he asked Nell about it, what should I do about all of this, especially the battle between Louise and Hortense? And she said to him, just put away your cod piece, sir. (laughs) Talks like that to a king. Problem solved. (laughs) This is why he liked her so much. I think she was casual and generous and and mostly cheerful. You know, here is, I am just now thinking about this. Okay, so everyone else is striving, 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 striving. And at any point, Nell can look around her life as it is. And then remember how she grew up, you know, and the difference. And she's realizing how very good she had it. Mm Mm-hmm. I think at at every point. Yes. She appreciated what she had, whereas these other people were social climbing and wealth climbing. And she's thinking, I'm the luckiest person in the world. All my dreams are realized. These people are still climbing. I'm at the top as far as I'm concerned. It's a nice view from here. You know what I find? The big hero of this story, I'm just going to throw it in here, is Queen Catherine. Because she's tolerating all these women. She's actually developing a friendship with Nell, which tells me a lot about not only Catherine, but about how Nell is with people, you know? And Catherine can see how much her husband truly loves this woman for whatever reason he's with all those others. But he's himself and he's a nice person. And the version of him with Nell is one she liked. Yeah, I just keep wondering, man, wouldn't that be a good scene in a movie? I almost wonder, you know, people do know 
when there's sincerity, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And I think that Nell and the Queen had a similar um gosh, they were so dissimilar though. I mean, personally. I know. Yeah. But they had a similar gentleness when it came to when the chips were down, we know where the yeah. lights are. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the other women were out for themselves. And Catherine knew that Nell, like Catherine, was out to keep protect the king. Yeah. Yeah. Her, the heart was in it. You said that you could see that in a movie. I see this as a series, a television series, like the Tudors. There's so many ways you can go with this. There's so many players, so many storylines, and you can, you know, show some nipple here and again. Season one would be fully Barbara, though. It would be like, Nell, Nell as a would child. even come in. Oh, I guess. And on the happen. stage. Yeah. yeah. So Nell's doing, you know, developing herself, and Barbara's doing whatever it is Barbara does. <laughs> We all know. Taking charge of the country. Yes. Get on this, HBO. That's right. Well, at 29, Nell suffered a blow. Her mother died. Unfortunately, it was not a very dignified death. She was drowned in a ditch while walking home inebriated, although it did get softened in the public press to a fish pond. Mm-hmm. Later historians are pretty sure it was a ditch in the side of the road. Yeah. While Nell's mother had been cruel in some ways while Nell was a child, Nell was still devoted to her. So she decided for her funeral, she would just go big. Like she had been in mourning as a joke. She was just going to throw this huge funeral for her mother a very elaborate funeral procession starting from Colyard Alley, which is where they were when Nell was a child, past the Royal Theater, through Covent Garden, to the church that Ma Gwyn had attended. As this entourage that includes all of Nell's friends, including Charles I and Charles II, and her theater friends, as it stopped at each of these locations, they would pass out beer to the people that were standing in the streets so that everybody could toast Ma Gwyn's life. I love it. She's like, this is what my mother would love. A stage production, including beer. That's right. (laughs) That's right. I just want to be very clear that the Charles II Susan referred to is not the king. <laughs> oh, right. Right. Um, yeah. So Nell's Charles I, Charles Hart, and Nell's Charles II. Yeah. As a matter of fact, we didn't mention this before. Nell jokingly calls King Charles II Charles III. Right. <laughs> because he's the third Charles that she's had. So, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. Hilarious. Yeah, very, very. Magwin was buried at the church, and Nell had a monument made for her, and it said, Here lies interred the body of Helena Gwyn, born in this parish, who departed this life 20th of July, 1679, in the 56th year of her age. She was 56. I'm surprised she lived this long. Yeah, she really did suffer from Mm -hmm. alcoholism and a hard life. Yeah, Yeah. I am surprised she made it this long. Um, I definitely think Nell, having financially supported her Mm -hmm. for for a number of years, you know, providing food and shelter helped extend her life a bit. Yeah. So that was definitely a tragedy, one that perhaps one might have anticipated 
to a certain degree, but it was the death of her younger son, James, away with his tutor in Paris, age nine, that was the truest tragedy of her life. This boy had been born on Christmas Day, and often there was a giant celebration with the king celebrating both Christmas Day and this child's birthday. And for the rest of her days, this holiday gave her a stab of pain. It was too much to bear. Mm. And there's so much mystery surrounding why James was in Paris. Nobody knows what school he attended. It sounds like he had gone to school at a very young age, even younger than normal, to be sent away to school. And the only information we have of his death is that he died of a sore leg. An infection or? Yeah, that's how I, that's what I thought. But we don't know where he's buried. Nothing. Well, the following year, perhaps as a consolation for her grief, the king gave Nell Burford House near Windsor, which technically still exists, but the original is no longer visible or even recognizable. So there might be some shreds of old wall inside of the place, but you can't really go visit her Burford House. Notably, Peeps... Peeps the Creep made it into the inner circle here and hung out. He made it. Hooray for a super fan making it into the inner circle of the star. In fact, the year before, he'd been arrested for selling secrets to the French and Nell had used her very, very, very few cards that she ever played to get him out of prison. The king gave him a pardon. Mm -hmm. So how's that for Peep's life? Yeah, no kidding. Right there. Hooray. I want to mention something about this house, though. I mean, it was on 40 acres. It butted up to Windsor Castle. There was gardens and orchards. But the thing that just jumped out at me, there was a hothouse for growing oranges on the property. Hmm. I know. I just love that. And that's where Charles and Nell, they just chilled there. They just had country life. They played with the dogs, you know, all those Cavalier King Charles Spaniels that were always around. They played with them. They went falconing, fishing. They just were, you know, they were just country people. Well, except for it was a big piece of comedy that Nell was not a good horsewoman, Mm -hmm. like such a not good horsewoman that he once offered to give her all the land she could ride around in a certain amount of time. And she's like, pass. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So I like it. I like that they had that that relationship. But, you know, she hadn't been really brought up to ride horses and she tried, but she was you know, notoriously not very good at it. One thing she was good at was giving generously to the less fortunate. She, in fact, was famous for coming across a weeping clergyman who was being harassed by tax collectors. And she scolded the officers and told them to go away and paid his taxes for him. Also, a rumor that this this is a persistent rumor to this day. Once Nell saw a poor wounded soldier out the window of her carriage and after relieving his immediate concerns, had the idea and brought it back to the king that there should be a place for them to go. A hospital for the veterans, the very hospital we just talked about during the Elizabeth Chudley episode. Now, there's no hard evidence that the Chelsea Hospital, the one in question, was directly from her, but tradition holds that that is where the idea came from. And sure enough, Charles II did originate that hospital. And we do know what relationship they had. So 
we leave that in the realm of possibility. It is one of those traditions like Cheese Day that Chelsea Hospital holds very firm to. Mm -hmm. I love the story. I mean, there's part of that story is that the original plans, it was based on a hospital very similar in France. And when Nell saw the plans, she ripped up some fabric that was bigger than what they had allotted for the hospital and slapped it down on the plans and said, no, you got to go bigger, this big. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know if it's true, but it'll be really great in that series. <laughs> well, the generosity was very characteristic of her, although um, sometimes she kept it anonymous. She had for years secretly conspired with the vicar of St. Martin in the field to give anonymously, taking no credit. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the church where her mother attended and her mother is buried. I don't think we mentioned the name of it. The king fell ill on Nell's 35th birthday. He collapsed suddenly and then was tortured by doctors for four days. He was attended by five of his illegitimate sons. Oh, we forgot to mention that he had ennobled Nell's eldest son to also be a duke like his other sons. Mm -hmm. uh, he was now the Duke of St. Albans, a title which is still in existence, by the way. Mm-hmm. And some of his last words were to his brother James, soon to be the new king, as he had no legitimate sons, let not poor Nelly starve. When the king died, he was 54 years old. And this hit me strange, especially in light of the funeral that we saw very recently. He was buried in a late night secret service. Now compare that to, you know, Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Very different. So Charles's funeral was quiet, and in Westminster Abbey, he has no monument. And for a long time, people didn't know exactly where he was. But a wax effigy had been made to stand by his grave, and the wax effigy even has silk underwear. So Charles asked James, let not poor Nellie starve. And James was as good as his word. He did provide Nell with a pension and paid her debts, including a mortgage on one of her properties. It seems to have been clear to him that of all his brother's ladies, there was only one who had been loyal and faithful to him for the entirety of their relationship. For 26 years, King Charles II had been her only romantic relationship. She wrote to King James, he was my friend. He allowed me to tell him all my griefs, which was true. Mm -hmm. And James knew that was true. James sent Louise back to France. Your services are no longer required, you know, so go back. Bye-bye. Au revoir. Although King James was financially helping Nell out at this time, there really wasn't anybody that was emotionally helping her out. She was grieving and she tried to cheer herself up, but even the theater wasn't doing the job. It really didn't take long for Nell's health to take a turn. When she was just 37, she suffered a stroke. She rallied, and two months later, she had another one that left her bedridden. And within two years of Charles's death, on November 14th, 1687, at the age of 37, Nell Gwynne died. She was buried like her mother at St. Martin in the Fields Church, and her funeral was greatly attended. It wasn't just courtesans and theater people, but it was all these common people who thought they knew her and all these aristocrats and upper class people who had run across her at the theater or at parties and were just coming to pay their respects. 
huge funeral. I just think it's so interesting to juxtapose that to the kings. She had what was almost like a royal funeral. Mm-hmm. But they, his was so tiny and discreet. Mm-hmm. But I think the fact that she just had all these social classes there to say goodbye to her is just a testament to who she was in her life. So I'm going to throw something out here. And I just want to be clear, this is very speculative. And it literally just occurred to me, mm-hmm. like just right now. Because, you know, you'll read that she had a stroke and then another stroke because of syphilis, but no one knows, question mark. And there's always that like, I don't know, doesn't sound possible, blah, blah, blah. Having both of us been through a severe grief Mm -hmm. and knowing that there is such a thing as broken heart syndrome, Mm -hmm. I am wondering, I mean, I'm just throwing it out. Wouldn't it be something if that's what killed Nell Gwynn? Yeah, That's it. That's all I'm saying. I'm not saying that I assert it or that anyone thinks that way. In fact, maybe they do, but I just thought of it. So I have no idea. Yeah. Well, she had, you know, she was in grief. And while James was supporting her, he was also giving her and her son a real hardcore press to convert to Catholicism. So that had to be an additional stress on her life. So I don't know that the Catholic thing gave her a single bit of stress, though, actually. It was. Um, I think it gave her stress. She knew she was going to say no, but she didn't know what it was going to affect her son's life after, you know, because, ah. yeah. Because of the prejudice against Catholics, even though James had converted openly, like mm-hmm. he was openly Catholic, the new king. Right. And that was causing quite a bit of distress. Yeah. In fact, that's how we ended up with... Uh, Queen Anne and her Protestant sister, because everyone was so afraid of a Catholic monarch right. <laughs> in England. So they did a lateral pass after James. But anyway, Whoa. there you go. Sports metaphors. Wow. I know. So I'm crazy. So we need impressed. to cover Queen Anne sometime too. Don't oh, we do. Oh, there's so, the list is so long, Becca. I know. It's so long. Well, in her will, Nell asked her son to reclaim prisoners out of debtor's prison each year at Christmas in her name. And that way Christmas was a little redeemed from being a sad holiday for her. At least um, that would do some good that day Mm -hmm. from then on. She also left bequests for the poor to be distributed by Dr. Tennyson, the preacher and vicar who had been with her there at the end and who had also preached at her funeral, even though she worried in her will, you know, don't do it if you think it might ruin your chances with the church to be associated with me at my funeral. Like to the end, she was very, very considerate of him. Even later, like 10 years later, when he was up for Archbishop of Canterbury, the queen at the time, Queen Mary said, if she put her life in his hands, it's obvious that this is a woman that uh, repented at the end mm-hmm. and he would never have done it. And he is a good man. And that makes him even more of a servant of God. And it made no impediment to him becoming Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah, he did actually get grief at the time for the um, Bible passage that he quoted in her service. It was Luke fifteen seven. I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The other 99 people are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm not going to heaven? You know, that, that that's the kind of um, controversy that this stirred up. But he stood by it. Well, he read right from the book. I, I know, know what people want. <laughs> Well, yeah. And then he could have gone into uh, you other 99 who think you don't have to repent. You absolutely do. (laughs) So one of your sins is that you think you're perfect. 
Yeah. Well, there you go. And that's how Jamila Jamil's character got into the bad place. <laughs> the end. This has been a pop culture wrap up by Becca Graham. Unexpectedly. Back to Nell, very briefly. She also left a bequest specifically to give money to aid the Catholic poor. So through her son, who married an heiress and had 12 children, most of whom survived to adulthood and had children of their own, it is estimated there are now over 300 direct descendants of Nell Gwen's living today. As for her ongoing legacy, in addition to those descendants, there was an orange that was named after her and a flea, for some reason, was named after her. There is a condo building in the very stylish Chelsea area of London named Nell Gwynne House. And outside of the building, there's a statue of Nell with a Cavalier King Charles Spaniel at her feet. It is believed to be the only statue of a royal mistress in London. Oh, I got chills. And now it's time for media. And as usual, we will begin with books. The first book, the big one, the deep dive book, is called Nell Gwynne, Mistress to a King by Charles Beauclair. This one goes into a lot of her plays. It goes into a lot of the supporting characters and her story. It goes into a lot of um, media that was written about her at the time. This is where there's a whole bunch written by Samuel Pepys. It's a good deep dive. It's going to take you a little bit longer if you want to listen to the audiobook. I loved it. The narrator was a British gentleman. He was delightful. (laughs) (laughs) The author is actually a descendant of Nell's, and he has decided that he isn't fond of being a titled person, although he should be the Earl of Burford. What do you know? Yeah. I think I would make business cards if I was Lady Beckett something. Yeah. Well, his this book at the end, he goes through a whole chapter of the line, you know, after the son Charles, you know, who came next, who came next in the whole lineage. And it's just full of people who were very unconventional and kind of bucked tradition. They were very Nell, I think. She would be very proud. Two other biographies that I liked. One by uh, Derek Parker, just called Nell Gwynn. And then um, Brian Beaven, Nell Gwynn, Vivacious Mistress of Charles II, that has a nearly pornographic picture on the front. Do you I got have this from the public library? <laughs> well, the portraits of the mistresses all are showing nipple. That's like a thing in a portrait. If it shows a nipple, it's a mistress. That's like one of those visual things. So well, it was nearly impossible for me to find a picture for the uh, link <laughs> that doesn't have a nipple showing. Isn't there one where she's making sausages? Um, let me say that again. It was nearly impossible for me to find a picture that we could use. <laughs> Another biography that I read was Charles II's Favorite Mistress, Pretty Witty Nell Gwynn by Sarah Beth Watkins. It's actually a very quick read. It's not a deep dive, but it does stick to her life, which in a lot of these biographies, you know, you're going to get a lesson in Restoration England and King Charles II and all his mistresses and all his drama in his life. So she's stuck really closely to Nell's life. Now, a Nell adjacent, and certainly includes Nell, is Eleanor Herman's Sex with Kings, 500 Years of Adultery, Power, Rivalry, and Revenge, which I literally was given 
by my husband as a Christmas gift one year. <laughs> Seriously? So, hmm. Wow, he knows you so well. <laughs> That's hilarious. Funny. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> uh, mine mine uh, along those lines was a little more tame. It's called Cupid and the King, Five Royal Paramours by Her Royal Highness Princess Michael of Kent, who is the wife of the first cousin of Queen Elizabeth II. So Nell is one of them, Madame Pompadour, Lily Langtree. We should cover her. Okay, I do want to comment that the 30-second summary was actually written by a playwright. It wasn't written by us. Uh, His name was Richard Flecknoe, and it was written in 1668. I'm trying to get all the written words out here. Okay, so then I have two other books that are um, absolutely background reading. Take them or leave them. The Time Traveler's Guide to Restoration Breton, a handbook for visitors to the 17th century by Ian Mortimer. I really like it. You can use it either for writing your historical fiction about Nell Gwynn, if you want to, or uh, any other figure of that era. Well, whoever's cool. going to be writing the series, because Nell Gwynn should not be a movie. It should be a series. That's true. Mm-hmm. And then I got down a rabbit hole and I loved this book by B. Wilson. Consider the Fork, a history of how we cook and eat. Haven't you used that one for other things before? I think you have because I recognize Maybe. Or maybe I read it. <laughs> wow. All these years, all these books, they're all blending together. Did you read it or did I? I don't know. <laughs> well, I will tell you that you can read the entire diary of Samuel Pepys. Like I said, though, it is rife with sexism and nonsense, and you're not going to believe he existed and is a regular Joe. (laughs) That said, feel free to read it. He writes about things mundane and elevated. He uh, had a position with the government, so he got some eyes on some things, you know, um, historical. Um, Anyway, it's at peepsdiary.com. And that's spelled P-E-P-Y-S, in defiance of all logic. (laughs) I keep wondering if her cat is perking up her ears, because her name is Peeps. Peep. Peep is asleep. (laughs) Peep is asleep. She's in her little cubicle. We got her those little circle fur beds, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And both cats just sit there. Anytime I'm talking, they think I'm talking to them. This has been like an hour and 45 minutes of soothing background music. Nice. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's all the actual books um, I have. I do have... um, Okay. This is so... Interesting. There is a blog that I really have seen a couple times before, frockflix.com, mm-hmm. and it goes through the different Nell Gwynn movies. And there's not a very recent one um, 1900, 1911, 1915, starring our friend Mary Pickford, by the way. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Gish reprised that role in 1926. And then um, there's a 1934, a couple of them, actually. 1934 was a banner year for Nell Gwen. A 1941, a 1949, which is a very frequent <laughs> subject. A 1954, a 1983, a 1995, where the features that are popular in any era are much in evidence. <laughs> um there's The Last King, The Power and the Passion of Charles II, uh, which is like a mini series, I don't know, from 2003, and Stage Beauty from 2004. I think that's it. And then it just dies. 2004 was the last, and that wasn't even about her. She right. was just a character in 
the movie. So I think that the time is right for another movie. Frock Flicks is also a podcast. They like point out all the zippers Costume. and bad yeah. fabrics and poor hairdos and stuff. So as recently as November 2020, there was a Nell Gwen movie coming from the makers of the movie Atonement. Remember the Kira Knightley mm-hmm. movie? Um, okay. The actress purported to play Nell Gwen is actually like this week starring in Emily, the story of Emily Bronte. It's the same actress. Mm-hmm. So did they put this one on hold? I don't know, but they did start going into pre-production and casting and stuff in early 2020. And that's kind of where it stops as far as definitive information. You know who that actress is? She's in a series on Netflix called Sex Education. She's Maeve in the show. Accurate enough to play Nell Gwynn. That's what I thought. As far as I'm concerned. But anyway, I'm just like, did they did somebody else scoop that actress? Because literally she is. You'll see her if you see the um, the movie. Emily will be in (laughs) cinemas, I guess, movie theaters, you know, in the UK uh, in October, like any minute. Um, But they don't know when they're going to release it in the US. So we're going to have to wait just like we do for Dairy Girls, except just like we have to for Great British Bake Off, which about like to kill me. We see them three or four days later. I think they get released on a Tuesday in Britain and Friday. So you have to stay off of the Instagram for four days so nobody spoils you. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So um, in more visual knowledge, now this is actually your department and maybe you can tell me what this means because I don't know. I just found it. So Nell Gwynn has been a character on Doctor Who. Okay, so Madam, which is Missy's Army for the Demotion of All Men, mm-hmm. was composed of many notable women from the history of Earth who Missy made contact with via space-time telegraph, don't know what that is, while she was imprisoned within the vault at St. Luke's University. Right. Fair enough. So some of the women, many of whom we have covered, here I should just list the ones we've covered, Agrippina the Younger, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Joan of Arc, Grace O'Malley, Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Anne of Cleves, Jane Seymour, Catherine Howard, Catherine Parr, I'm sensing a theme there, <laughs> Mary one, Elizabeth one, Pocahontas, Nell Gwynn, Catherine the Great, Marie Antoinette, Jane Austen, I mean it keeps going, but we have covered a lot of them. Well, that's interesting because (laughs) when you watch Jeopardy, there's a lot of answers that are from our subjects. And it just makes me and some of my friends think that some writer for Jeopardy is listening to us. So if they are, I actually would love it if the History Chicks was an answer on Jeopardy. But in relation to what you're talking about, that really sounds like we are getting our subject list from Doctor Who. (laughs) (laughs) she's like get to the point susan (laughs) that's a really circuitous route (laughs) i think we're just drawing from the same you know well yeah true there are many that doctor who didn't put in that cavalcade that we have covered where's mary seacole uh mary seacole was actually in doctor who not in the madam episode oh no no not on that not in the army no 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 whatever it is yeah (laughs) I'm trying to redeem myself to the Whovians out there. Oh, yeah. Mary Seacole did. Yep. They were. She was in there. Mm-hmm. Is Facebook like Facebook? No. <laughs> I have no okay. idea. I don't. Okay. I have to say my daughter is one of those people that she could have 
the actual episode, <laughs> tell you what it is. I'm not one of those people. I watch it. I go, oh, that was good. Rosa Parks. Yeah. And then it's gone. I don't keep it in my brain. Okay. There is actually a play that's performed in a lot of theater companies called Nell Gwynn. Um, the original one was Gugu Mabatha Raw, who was Belle in the movie um, Dito Elizabeth Bell. Um, she's in a series now called Surface, which I really like. She's Mary Seacole, speaking of Mary Seacole, um, in an upcoming movie. So it's got a little musical element, and there's a song, and I don't want to put it in your head, but man, it keeps rolling in mine. I won't sing it. I can dance and I can sing. There's a song stuck in my head. Shut it up, Susan, right now. <laughs> what? No, you're never going to believe it. It's this dumb thing. Well, it's not dumb. It's a thing. I heard it on Jimmy Fallon, and it's this guy that puts internet drama to music. Mm-hmm. And so he got on a forum and had asked, which salad dressing is your favorite? And they made a song. He, Jimmy Fallon, and... Free Larson, I think. Anyway, it's called Blue Cheese Has Mold in It. <laughs> and that's been stuck in my head for a month. Oh, okay. Then my I can dance and I can sing. I can dance and I can sing. When we get together is better. <laughs> At least it's a show tune. <laughs> Are we going to cut out all the singing <laughs> section and just re-record it? No. That might be what we do. No. Okay. Let's see. There is a video I'll put in the show notes. There's a pub in London called Nell of Old Drury Pub. And um, it's across the street from where her theater was. And it's linked by a tunnel. And supposedly, Charles and Nell would get together through this tunnel and then go upstairs to a room in the pub. That's Well, there you go. That's the story that's being told. And so this video actually goes in the tunnel. It's just kind of cool. So uh, I also have a link to the execution of Charles the First. I have a um, this kind of goes along with my obsession with the introduction of forks. It's actually a major theme of the new Catherine de Medici thing that's just coming out on Netflix too. Hmm. The fact that Catherine de Medici, you know, brought the fork from Italy to France, and then here Charles the Second. While in France, was like, what is this? And brought it back to England. Right. Like the fork Travel. that you have 900 of them in your kitchen. <laughs> that don't match. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that's that's there too. Uh, a whole expose about public dining. Um, and then I have found on thelondonist.com different statues and memorials and plaques to Nell Gwynn that are currently in London today that you could go visit. So we'll link you up there. It shows photos and um, a little background on why the places are there. I would like to see a couple of those next time we go to London. I think that would be a fun little trip. We could do like I did with Laura Ingalls and I put a pencil on Laura Ingalls' grave and I put a potato on Mr. Parmentier's grave. Mm. And maybe we can put an orange. Oh, I love it. In St. Martin of the Fields. Nice. I like it. Let's do it. You have all these really nice things. I have a horrible history. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's put together like an ad for a tabloid or a movie star magazine called Oh Yeah Magazine. And Nell is this airheaded woman. It's clever. It's, her you know, awesome. it's horrible histories. It's clever. She'd probably really like it, too, because she was the mistress of the comedy. Yes, she probably would. Too bad there's not a drunk history. I know. I looked. 
And that'll about do it. That's all I've got. And in closing, two quotes from people close to Nell Gwen. First, from author Charles Beauclair, a direct descendant of Nell Gwen. Nell reveled in the ambiguities and contradictions of her life, whether skipping barefoot through the alley of St. Giles, serving firewater in a body house, entertaining audiences in Drury Lane, playing the wild mistress at Epsom, or the fool at Whitehall. She transformed herself with as much delight as she transformed others. And the second, from a dedication, from author and personal friend of Nell Gwen, Afra Ben, who we hope to cover in the future. Besides all the charms and attractions and powers of your sex, you have beauties peculiar to yourself. An eternal sweetness, youth, and air which never dwelt in any face but yours. You never appear, but you glad the hearts of all that have the happy fortune to see you, as if you were made on purpose to put the whole world into good humor. Thanks for listening. Bye! If you liked what you heard today, tell a few friends about an episode of ours that you think they would like. Special shout out to Stacy B, who told my husband about the History Chicks. He already sort of knew. But that was a level of awesome that sort of transcends. <laughs> it was nice to talk to you on the phone. Please leave a review for us on iTunes. Your reviews convince other people paging through the podcasts of the world to give us a try. The song in the middle is Orange Sphere by Future Former, and the song at the end is My Town by The Bell Hours. Wanted that summer again